Last year, Burning Man launched a fellowship program. The fellowship program was designed to support and foster community leadership in the Burning Man Project program areas, including storytelling. So this year, we are proud to award our very first storytelling fellowship to Tony Coyote. This reading is uh, being recorded as part of a podcast featuring a serial release of his upcoming book called The Tales of the Early Desert Carnies of Burning Man. <laughs> Tonight's reading is chapter one, In Through the Outdoor. <laughs> and so what I'm going to be reading is, uh, it's a book that's called, uh, it's a Coyote Knows book. Um, the, uh, these podcasts will eventually become that book, hopefully. And it's going to be in three parts. This, uh, what we're going to read tonight is the first chapter of the first part, which is just called Inferno. I would like to dedicate this book to the, uh, the memory of my late brother, uh, David Scott Patterson. He was the, um, the greatest storyteller that I've ever met. And uh, to my mother, the late uh, Jean Arnise McCormick, who always believed that I was a writer. So these are stories of how rituals are born. In through the outdoor, an early taste of death is not necessarily a bad thing. Charles Bukowski. We were all accustomed to being fooled by the sorcery of the Black Rock Desert with its shimmer and slant, but a small raining cloud hovering overhead like a balloon on a string was spooky. The rest of the sky was vast and clear, making this little cloud all the more peculiar. But there it was, about the size of a small gray pond, and even moving with us as we worked. It was a typical blazing day on the August desert playa with temperatures around 110. There was no wind, nowhere to hide from the sun. When it got this hot, we kept a cooler packed with ice bandanas on the water truck. Newbies in the Department of Public Works of Black Rock City would take this ice for granted, but the others who had been around long enough knew better. In the early years, resources were as scarce as shade trees. The nearest water was out at Fly Ranch, and the nearest ice machine at a gas station about 35 miles away, in both in opposite directions. It was a catastrophe if a cooler fell off a truck and spilled, a mistake that a crew would only make once. That's why when this weird little cloud came over us, any suspicions quickly gave way to simple acceptance. After all, it was bringing us water in the desert and misting us down with a blessed shade. We took five and tossed the sledgehammers into the flatbed, giving our overheated muscles a moment. We refilled our water bottles and chugged deeply, happy to be out on the playa, happy to be working and sweating in the heat. I was in my 50s now and been building the cities of Burning Man for 20 years, so running a crew in the desert came easy to me. We let our heads fall back to catch the cool drops on our faces as I leaned my on my elbows and gazed into that cloud. The more I thought about it, the more I mused. It was just too otherworldly for coincidence. I tried to peer deeper into it, searching for meaning maybe, but was only met with a faceless riddle, not unlike the man that we burn every year. A mystery is a truth partially revealed, Cowboy Carl once said, but the truth behind this cloud seems shrouded. I'm sure that science could explain it away, but it wouldn't account for the perfect timing, like the gods of the playa were throwing us a bone a bone we accepted with pride. We'd been sunbaked and beaten down plenty. The first time I got my brain cooked out there <clears throat> was 20 years prior. I was building that same promenade that we were just working on, except this time I was alone and just gone through a three-day wormhole. When I went to my first Burning Man, I came in through its ass. <laughs> I'd been awake for three days the first time my front wheels hit the three-mile entrance to the Black Rock Desert 
It was just before dawn, and I had little memory of the last 70 miles of highway with only the drone of the motor and Jason's chatter to, keep, to accompany the amphetamines that were keeping my Mazda sports car between the lines. The only scenery in the last hours had been a ghost town next to a railroad track. Does anyone even live here, I asked Jason. He was my city buddy who was lanky and fierce and had the eyes of a husky. I was more docile and unsure, but ready to follow. We were both at pivotal times and had broken free from the limits to go on to this bizarre pilgrimage. I don't know. I've never really stopped here, he said. It's the only town for miles. I don't even know the name of it. It was 1996, and my music career had plateaued. I was a Michigan boy that had moved to San Francisco, making a living singing, playing sax, and had been playing the blues in North Beach for several years. I was a blue-collar musician that showed up to work five nights a week to play music like any working man. I knew the luster was thinning one night when I played an entire saxophone solo while thinking about my laundry. <laughs> I was in creative purgatory. That's when I met Jason. He was a dark comet, streaking the streets of SF on his skateboard, shedding his mark everywhere, emoting the hard, emoting the hard truths of an inner city life. He was pure creative energy, a lighthouse in my fog, and impossible to keep up with. All I could do was, was hope to grasp his comet's tail and briefly hang on. Then we would soar through the city night and meld with the back alley culture. We rolled on for another three or four miles when Jason said, this is it, turn off here. Finally reaching a destination snapped me from hypnosis. We turned in and came to a stop. My headlights that had been following a dashing white line were now pointed out into nowhere, their beams fizzling into the ether. We sat stunned, our city ears ringing in the silence. There's nothing out here, Jason, I said. There's a trailer out here somewhere. There should be someone camped here with a compass settings to find Burning Man. Compass settings? That's why you were so insistent about bringing the compass. We're supposed to just drive out there until we find it. Well, yeah, man. I think I see something down there to the left. We crept further, and then I saw a reflection of light up ahead. It was the broken back window of a very small gray trailer that had the words trauma unit painted on its side in red. We slowed to a stop and rolled down the window. The morning smell of desert sage came in. It was the first of the brambly spirits that would call. It put its hands on either side of my face, breathing into my nose, saying, My God, you've been asleep in the city for quite a while, haven't you? I have, I muttered the answer under my breath. Jason had seen how deep a sleep that was, so I trusted him when he came to me one day and said, You're coming with me to Burning Man. And now I was in a sports car facing the Black Rock Desert at dawn, and I was thinking what most people think when first seeing the desert that we call the Playa. What is this place? The deepest shades of red were starting to glow behind distant mountains, revealing the mass expanse before us. We were on Mars. Roll up on that trailer, Jason said. The light was getting stronger, and for the first time, I was looking at the marvel of the Black Rock Playa. It was a prehistoric ocean bed that had dried up and left cracked flat clay for a thousand square miles. My city eyes were hopeless, as they had nothing that could elude to scale. My sense of perception seemed stripped of its clothes, standing naked in the blankness. We rolled a bit closer, and I could see the trailer creaking on its springs. Then the door flung open, and an extremely large person climbed out, barking at us. How does a guy that large fit into a trailer that small, I asked. He's telling us to turn off the headlights. We're, we're being rude. I shut off the lights, and my eyes widened, and I saw the, as I saw this giant was armed with weaponry that covered most his body. Jesus Christ, I said, that's more guns on one person I've never seen. Well, that's how we roll out here. It's fucking Nevada. 
This corpulent fellow dressed in black stepped menacingly to the driver's window and leaned in on his elbow. He had a round face with black hair pulled back into a bun, making him resemble a sumo wrestler. This was the 96 version of The Gate, which is now staffed with hundreds of people and takes hours to get through. If you guys are looking for Bernie Man, you're too early, he said. I was pretty rattled by all the steel swinging just outside my window, so Jason did the talking. Uh, we're camping with Will Roger and Crimson Rose, and we're here early to help and set up and shit. And we also know Larry Harvey and John Law. <laughs> he was dropping every name he had, and it worked. Speaking the secret passwords loosened our sumo wrestler stance a bit. Uh, my name's Bogman. So uh, you guys are here to work? All right. Uh, ever been to the Black Rock Desert before? Yeah, Jason said. It's my third year. He was trying to keep it cool. I, however, was feeling a rush of something new. You guys got water and provisions, Mr. Bogman asked. Yeah, we lied. <laughs> you guys carrying guns? No, uh, we figured we'd tell the truth on this one. I thought I saw a brief wash of disappointment on Mr. Bogman's face. Did you bring a compass? Jason started digging in his pocket. He had checked that same pocket for it at every moment as we skittered about like moths trying to get out of town. Yep, he said, pulling it out. Okay, set your odometer and go one mile due east. Then turn north by northeast and go about 16 more miles and you'll see it. We saluted him with our thanks, showing him and his boomsticks the proper Nevada and respect and rolled on. We would be seeing more of Mr. Bogman in the days to come. I nudged the gas and tiptoed out onto the playa as one would step out onto thin ice. But our confidence grew as we discovered a firm surface, not unlike concrete. Over the years, the playa has become soft with ruts and washouts, but back then it was flat and firm. You could open up your motor and skim like a speedboat with nothing in your way for the next 40 miles. I've since heard of legends of locals in the past that would traverse the playa by tying off their steering wheel and setting a brick on the accelerator while they hung out in the back of the RV drinking beer. We slowly gathered speed to the one-mile mark, quickly becoming emboldened by the Western spirit. Something started to happen inside of me. It was something I hadn't felt for a very long time, as, o as this open span lay ahead. It was freedom. I felt like an oil derrick was about to strike my soul. We reached one mile and turned the car north by northeast. There was no road. No lanes or markers, no cops, no other cars, no anything. I turned to Jason and mirrored his mania. His eyes were the devil's pinwheels. <laughs> then it snapped. Thirty years of rumbling burst into a geyser. I aimed that blast into the emptiness, and my foot buried the gas pedal. Even the sports car seemed thrilled as she finally got to open up her heart and bail down in full stride. Our adrenaline rose with the speedometer that was quickly topping out at 120. We were a launched rocket. I heard someone screaming. It was Jason hanging out of the sunroof with arms outstretched in full surrender. We reached orbit. The, clock, the car floated as it devoured the playa and stress blew off me like broken armor. Even at that speed, the mountain still looked to be standing still. There was no way to tell if something was a half a mile away or 20. The car scorched on and it seemed that we were going nowhere. The sun had gone from an orange ball to blazing yellow as we were in full daylight now. The morning shimmer was coming up, stretching to the horizon, warped and glassy. My excitement started getting edgy as we headed into a freakish unknown. A million years of instincts were telling me to get away from this waterless, inhumane place, and the deeper we went into the playa, the more uncomfortable I became. We've been going for a while now. Where the fuck is it? I managed to bellow through the sunroof. Just keep driving. It's got to be out of here. 
Further and further we went. I couldn't tell it had been five minutes or 25 as the 16 miles got longer. Still, there was only the shimmer mirage that looked like a distant lake getting bigger as the sun rose higher. Then I thought I saw something. It started as a floating speck on the horizon. I kept losing it, then finding it again as my eyes searched. As we got closer, it now seemed like two smudges, one above the other, both hovering. It was morphing and growing like a cell dividing under a microscope or a monolith in the distance. Who could tell? Then it started to take shape. There it is, Jason shouted from the sunroof, wildly pointing leftward. I slowed and adjusted the wheel a bit more north, squinting while I leaned towards the windshield, and there it was, the first visible piece of Black Rock City, a doggy diner head. Why was I not surprised? It's a doggy diner head, Jason. Where the hell are you taking me? I loved it already. He was taking me to a place that was starting the joke with the punchline. I told you he'd love it, he shouted. I couldn't believe that the beacon of our three-day clamor to get out of town was an iconic doggy diner head that was an old sign for the Bay Area hot dog chain. It was a cartoonish dachshund with a brown droopy face and honking eyes. It was wearing a chef's hat that looked like a Stay Puft marshmallow, had on a polka dot bow tie. It was ghoulish and unnerving, but it made you want a hot dog somehow. I think it was that his nose looked like a frankfurter. It was already trippy on its own, let alone floating on shimmer as we hurled towards it. The mirage distortion was starting to vanish. What moments ago it appeared to be a 40-foot grinning dog was turning out to be just a six-foot painted fiberglass head. Jason and I had made jailbreak from the norm and into a new paradigm. It was a place shrouded in the dust of nowhere that did not cast judgment, stripping you of self-boundary. We dropped out of orbit and touched down. Shapes of camps formed out of the heat like the tricks of illusionists. It was a Shangri-La, a Saharan oasis, a thriving outpost on a barren planet. It was a high sky and the morning sun was already scorching. I could see people moving about, most dressed loose and breezy. The mood was one of high endeavor. Everyone was building, their faces holding declarations of achievement as their plans were finally coming together. My car windows were flashcards of visions from all directions, nothing of the ordinary. There was a bus-sized shark car being spray-painted silver. There was a Mad Max cannon machine on huge wagon wheels with a pilot flame burning at its muzzle. A truck drove by dragging a toilet with a man sitting on it reading a newspaper. And just in the distance behind them, there were two desert goddesses assembling the wings to a brilliant stainless steel hawk, each feather a wonder. There was a man welding. There was another man blowing glass. I'd never been surrounded with so much creation, and I wanted to meet them all. It knocked me off my music stage, tossing, tossing me onto the grill of imagination. I was going to have to learn a whole new language. We should see if we can find Will and set up camp, Jason said. He's camped at Checkpoint Salon. Okay, I said, whatever that was. We wove through the tents and trailers that seemed to be peppered for miles, coming at last to a central camping area. There was a constant construction happening everywhere. One of the structures looked like a cardboard cutout of an office high-rise. It stood 60 feet high and was painted bright red. Look at that building, I said. Is that someone's camp? It's uh, Helco. It's a protest to corporate logos, and the whole thing's going to burn. The area was the size of a city block and was roped off. It was filled with painted movie set facades that had things like Starfucks and Hell gasoline instead of Shell and Submit instead of Subway. Joe Camel was there along with Colonel Sanders, made out to look like the devil, and of course the golden arches of McSatan's. It was a hard-pressed construction site with hammering workers, trucks, heavy equipment, and a lot of noise and diesel. It was also industrial. This ain't no rainbow gathering, I exclaimed. No, it is not, was all Jason said. 
We came up onto a central clearing with a scaffold being erected in the middle. This must be center camp, Jason said. We pulled into the site that carried all the stress of a stage play before opening night. I think I see Will. He's over there. Just off a ways, I saw a shirtless man in a cowboy hat. He had the build of a linebacker and was scooting along with a dirt bike with a pile of forum stakes in his lap. He was stopping and dropping them at intervals. A buxom, topless woman was picking them up and pacing them off in different directions. She was elegantly middle-aged with long, dark gray hair down her back and had the pace of a dancer. That's Will's girl Crimson, Jay said. We'll be camping with them. He leaned out the window and shouted, Hey, Will, it's me, Jason. We made it. We're here to work, and I brought extra hands. Will putted over to us and stopped. He was hot and sweating, and his skin was charred. He wore a stern frown, and I could instantly feel his exasperation. This is my bunny Tony, said Jason, He's, as he introduced me. He's here to help set up. Will regarded me only with an, and only nodded his head. Jason, you said you were going to be here two days ago. We're behind, and I really need your help. Well, it took us a bit to get out of town, I guess. That was quite the understatement. It took us two and a half days a tweak just to get to the bridge. Well, you can start helping by loading the truck with these spire bases. We haven't even started building the promenade to the man yet. Well, we're pretty fried, Jason said. We need to set up camp and rest for a minute. Will's face screwed darker as he shook his head. Shit, Jason. Well, do what you got to do and come help as soon as you can. He turned and powered his bike away. The next hour was spent guilt creeping under the radar of work as we searched behind Checkpoint Salon for a good place to squat. We still had a few days till the event started and would be camped and ready. We found a suitable spot and started unloading the crumpled mess crammed in the hatchback. I had a small martineer's tent that had to be entered on hands and knees and just large enough to unroll the sleeping bag. Drained from all the extra wattage, all I could do was crawl in and try to crash on the hot slab playa. But the desert had different plans for us. I lay in my oven tent with three days of go-fast marching through my veins. It was, I was in direct sunlight now and I was being dry roasted. I might as well have been in a kiln. I had not prepared for this. I hadn't prepared for any of this. I think back now on how bad of campers we were. Water? Nope. Food? Nope. Shade? Not even. Sunscreen? Nope. Goggles? Yeah, right. A hat? A ball cap that I lost on the first day. Jackknife? Tools, utensils, canteen, anything? Nope. Turns out that the compass was the only thing we had that was even remotely close to camping gear. We can hustle the things we need when we get there, Jason had said. But right now all I wanted to do is see if, we could, if I could sleep. I lay on one side, sweating and twitching. I lay on the other side, twitching and sweating. My heart raced as I wheezed on the thin air and I was starting to know real thirst. I think I did experience a parody of sleep that was more like a dizzy hum, but mostly I just lay there like a pan left on a stove, or like roadkill turning into jerky on the searing blacktop. That's when I heard Jason scratching on the tent. Tony, you awake? I can't sleep for shit. Well, yeah, I'm awake. Who could sleep in this hot box? I was reminded of the prison movies where punishment was getting thrown into some metal shack in the sun and left to die. Uh, I crawled out of my tent and into the microwaves. I sure could use a drink of water. <laughs> my voice was becoming a dry whisper. Yeah, we forgot that shit, answered Jay. Well, we might as well get up and start helping. I'm sure Will's got water. Then he turned to me and flashed a different kind of grin. This one had a glint. I knew that glint. 
It could fly. It's why he was impossible to keep up with. Jason had fashioned himself with wings. While others were crawling through their ant farms of life, he had taught himself how to soar. I wanted to soar too, but I was just wildly flapping. He pulled his wallet from his shorts and reached in to find a small folded piece of cellophane. He fished it out and held it up, pinched in his fingers. I could see the little white squares through the cellophane. It was blotter acid and had cartoons of Snoopy's bird friend Woodstock on them. I'm going to dose, he said. There's an extra hit here if you want it. Well, I had followed him this far. And who's to say that taking a hit of acid after being up for three days on amphetamines without eating or drinking any water, then driving to the driest place possible in an altitude of 4,000 feet to start loading heavy shit off a truck was a bad idea. How could I have known that I would shortly be on a mind fuck through the bilges of my psyche or that Satan would soon be drinking the life out of my wrists with flaming fangs? I gave him the sideways look of blind trust. It was the same look I had given my cousin Danny all those years ago when I was ten, and he was leading me into that abandoned house at the end of our block at night. He handed me the tiny folded piece of paper, and while unthinking any of it, I put it on my tongue. I was feeling rickety and couldn't find my hat already. My hair was hot. I did find my scratched-up sunglasses and put them on, and as I stood up, I leaned into the heat, hoping my legs would catch up. We found Will, who was still working and was now driving a bashed-up flatbed and was, that was loaded with what looked like big clunky pieces of plywood furniture. Awesome, you guys are up, Will said. Hop on and start offloading these spire bases. Stepping onto that flatbed was like stepping onto a breakfast griddle. Everything was hot. The metal, the air burning in our lungs, my belt buckle, the melting soles of my Converse high tops, my eyelids, for Christ's sakes, even my nose hairs were singeing. I hadn't had a drink of water for so long that my tongue was a crocodile and my lips felt like dried up worms on a sidewalk. The truck jerked into motion and anything I grabbed was burning my city hands. I gotta have some water. Ask some if I could have a drink of water. My whisper had turned into a croak. Hey, Will, Jason said, leaning into the driver's window. My, my buddy and I need a drink of water. A hand came out of the window holding an old army canteen. Real thirst will drive a person and I snatched at it, never mind the please or thank you. I unscrewed the cap and chugged, barely noticing that the water in the canteen was the temperature of hot tea. That did not matter. Already the desert was stripping me down to basic needs. Most of us lounge in delusion, not knowing that we're only one bad afternoon way from desperation. We seldom consider how quickly things deplete when supplies are cut. We were lumbering down the promenade, slepping, slepping giant spire bases in the heat when my body finally said, fuck you, and started shutting down. And then... The acid kicked in. <laughs> it started with shallow panting. Then it felt like there were ping pong balls bouncing in my chest as my heart raced. My vision was darkening into a shrinking tunnel as my bones began to twist. I was turning into a rubber band. I tried to move about, but the acid was a saltwater taffy machine stretching me asunder. The incinerated world around me was becoming wiggly and flubbery. I looked down and gasped. I could actually see the life force draining out of my wrists in a pale cascade. Satan was coming to reap his debt. Three days of no sleep, no food or water while being crystallized from within by meth was taking its toll. I was dying. I tried to lift another spire base when the hot hand of gravity slapped me to the ground. I collapsed, tumbling off the flatbed and hit the plyo like a broken bag of garbage. Jason spun around. Tony, Tony, are you okay? I think I'm dying. I think I'm dying, was all I could gasp out. 
The vivid torment of LSD was taking hold and amplifying my panic to a critical mass. All I could do was lay there with bulging eyes and gaping mouth. I was a trout in the bottom of a boat. I guess that's what happens when you try to keep up with a soaring comet. Jason was still in his 20s and a veteran of drug use. He wasn't bothered by any of our excessive hand antics. He was upbeat and happy, tossing spire bases around like beach balls. It all seemed so unfair. <laughs> Will stopped the truck and got out with his hands on his hips. We need to get him to Flash's camp, was all he said. <laughs> Several hands load me back onto the breakfast griddle. Will got back into the truck, shaking his head while muttering something about how Jason was supposed to bring extra hands, not someone tripping on drugs. This only added shattered pride to my tortured emotions blazing in my brain. Jason's face was a worried twist, like that of a child that had just broken his favorite toy. The truck had made a slow turn and headed to the far corner of a budding city. It was a very long ride. As I lay there watching the life force continue to drain out of my wrists like smoke off a of dry ice. Flash's camp loomed in the distance. As we approached, it looked to be a sultan's oasis. It was low and lush with flowing fabrics billowing and Arabic-looking cushions and carpets strewn about. Beautiful people were drifting around the camp clad in the sheerest of textiles, covering just enough to make them even sexier. Even in my death rattle, I could still embrace their beauty. They all looked like gods and goddesses. Pulling alongside the camp, a gray-bearded man popped out of one of the only trailers. He was wiry and animated, waving his arms and laughing in the cadence of Lucifer. I was reminded of maybe Seder, the Greek mythical half-man, half-goat with pointy beard and horns, made even more confounding with a gravel voice booming out in an East Coast accent. This was Flash. His toothy grin quickly turned to hard concern when he saw them cradling me off the truck like broken glass. This one's not doing so well, said Will. Maybe you can let him rest in your camp and get some shade and water. Hey, what happened to him, Flash asked. I think he's overdosing on acid. Flash snapped around and peered into my face. His eyes were the blue flames of a cutting torch. He had me locked, and all I could do was stand and shiver with my folded arms clutching to what was left of my bones. He stepped in close. Clapping his hands hard on my shoulders, he cut right through my panic, simply saying, You're not gonna die! <laughs> it was the power of suggestion. Hands guided me to a lavish sofa and sat me down. A wet washcloth appeared on my forehead and a canteen filled with cool minty water was placed in my hands. I truly was at an oasis. I would later find, come to find that Black Rock City was fueled by love like this. Meanwhile, the acid was at a vigorous boil and everything was outlined in neon, twisting away from reality. I looked down and saw that I had the hands of a chimpanzee and my wrists were still spilling. Everything was racing and weird. I turned my head and was astonished to see a goat standing there. Was it real or was it a massive hallucination? It stared at me with its rectangle pupils while chewing on something. First I see a half-man, half-goat step out of a trailer and now a real goat in the camp. What the fuck's going on with these goats? Then Flash said, wait right here and try and relax. I'll be right back. Like I was going anywhere. <laughs> a few moments later, Flash returned with a magnificent looking man. He was wearing a turban with a long white Arabic robe. He had a long nose and a black mustache. His eyes were made of charcoal. This is Oliver, Flash said. He's got something for you. Oliver said nothing and handed Flash two tablets. This is 500 milligrams of niacin. Asking about it later, I'd find out that the niacin flush, vitamin B3, cleans out your toxins that can sometimes manifest into fiery red blotches on your skin. Inquiring further, I found out that a recommended daily amount was around 35 milligrams. That afternoon, Flash gave me 500. <laughs> he was my doctor, and these were his orders. 
It's going to cook the acid out of your brain, he said. It'll bring you down in about a half an hour, but it's going to be the craziest sleigh ride right through hell that you ever had. You're going to feel like you're on fire. Your head's going to turn into a pressure cooker. You're going to want your mommy. Then you're going to need to use a porta potty. <laughs> I was desperate. I took the pills. Flash had told the truth. The next arrow was straight down the nine levels of hell from Dante's Inferno and into Lucifer's mouth, a perfect precursor to the hell co-week that was about to come. I rolled into the fetal position, hugging my knees and rocking as my skin started blotching out in red, fiery patches. I was literally blazing. I was on a horror train heading into the mouths of zombies. Bloody gore was everywhere. My head felt like a steam engine with hot coal being shoveled into my furnace mouth. It was boiling my brain. Everything I see, saw seemed to have horrible meaning. The cups and glasses on the little coffee table chattering at me. The billowing fabric becoming murmuring spirits all laughing at me. At one point I turned and saw the goddamn goat again. This time shitting poop pellets into a half-eaten plate of food still sitting on the ground. What the fuck? He drank the rest of the tea out of the teacup. Then he ate the tea bag, the string, the tag, even the little staple. It all seemed so poignant, and I was having re revelations that were instantly gone as fast as they came. A beautiful young girl came and knelt down in front of me. She was wearing almost nothing. She started stroking my hands while gently whispering, Find your center. Find your center. There wasn't much center in a rocket ride up Satan's ass, though. I, I just wanted her to go away. At that point, a vivacious man sat down next to me and slapped my back, saying in a thick sack accent, And who are you? I haven't met you yet. He was an older man with a Latin look, wild dark eyes, a bushy white mustache, and eyebrows that protruded about an inch from his forehead. I was unable to talk, so the young beauty intervened, saying that I wasn't feeling well. I would meet that man later and become part of his inferno opera. His name was Pepe Ozan. He shrugged and stepped away. The trip raged on until I was a paper bag torching in a burn barrel. Then, as Dr. Flash had foretold, the fever broke. The mighty vice of LSD started to loosen its grip, like a bully that's finally tired of beating you and just drops you on the floor with the last few kicks. I felt like the fur and bones that an owl shits out after eating a mouse. I wasn't out of the woods yet, but a plug had been pulled and the tub was draining. I lay there for a moment, washed out and weak. Then another of Flash's predictions came true. Can you tell me where the porta potty is? <laughs> A few people pointed into a direction, so I got up on shaky legs and made my way to the potty. I got in and sat down with the sticky tendrils of acid still in my head. I felt like I had just stepped into a hot blue lava lamp with the walls of the potty morphing and blubbing around me. Then the niacin did the rest of its flushing job and shit blasted out of me like hot wax. <laughs> I finished and made my way back to the shade and to the sofa. There was nothing left of me, a cobweb in the corner to be continued. <laughs> All right. You'll just have to hear the rest of the podcast to find out what happens next. 
The acid kept coming in waves like seasickness as I stayed in the oasis camp for the rest of the afternoon. The sun's flare was starting to slant as the dry air was releasing its heat. The growing shadows on the flatness had nothing to stop them and soon stretched to the far-off mountains. More campmates swished in on magic carpets, weary from the work day, many wondering who the broken waif on the couch was. Who's the homeless kid? Don't know who he is. Mr. Clean brought him in. I guess he was overdosing on drugs. Who's Mr. Clean, I thought. I would later find out that that was Will's playa name and radio handle. Well, I hope he's not staying, I heard someone say. We don't have enough food. Then another psychedelic nausea wave would crash in, making me feel like I was going to vomit mattress stuffing. The punishment was fitting the crime. But they were getting less intense, and I was starting to pull out of the tumble. The beautiful young lady petting my hands had it right. I was finding my center. A lot of camps had drum circles back then. It wasn't long before I heard the boom of an evening djembe drum. It was quickly answered, and a solemn beat started to move the camp. The setting sun seemed to nod and spread her soft colors with the rhythm. The shrapnel of my world was starting to make sense. All of my fractals had been big-banged into the cosmos, and the gravity of rhythm was pulling them back. It was a gyroscope that was writing the capsule, the thrumming engine room that was bringing the drifting ship back on its course. I had been cradled in music my entire life, and years of playing the same old stuff had smothered its voice. It took an episode like this to uncover its soul once again, to make me fall back into its marrow. There was an extra drum beckoning, and I went to it with nods of approval from welcoming eyes that seemed to know that I needed it. I was at home in the saddle of percussion, and joined in the beat. It was exactly what I needed. Our journey starts with a heartbeat after all. It would be the first time in my life that I would have no thoughts. They had all been incinerated. All that I was made of was a simple beat. All that anything was made of was a simple beat. The spinning electrons, the rise and fall of a breathing chest, the changing seasons, the tilted gears of the spinning planets, a swirling galaxy, all following a grand cadence, a simple truth that I could feel in the stripped wires of my nerves. Life is but a pulse. One point I noticed Jason standing by the camp's edge watching me. His arms were folded and he was smiling. Our eyes met and he nodded. I was going to be all right. Flash had come out to check on his patient one more time before we left. He was wearing a blood-stained apron and he led me back behind his trailer where he had been grilling a pig smeared with banana sauce. Turns out that it wasn't his camp after all. It was actually the camp of Pepe Ozan and the campmates were to be the cast of his opera performance. Flash was the camp cook and was known as Papa Satan. He was the guy to know and took care of everybody. Hey, I told you you'd be all right, he said, as he rubbed more banana smear on his suckling pig, head and all. Deniasin works every time. Not many people know about it. Well, tell Oliver thanks. That shit saved my ass. He was glad to do it. He always has it with him for such occasions. Here, try some of this pig. It was the combination of a few things. The timing, Flash's grilling skills, my raw hunger, the playa itself. But whatever the reason, that bite of port sent me. The salty, sweet flavors bringing me around. It is a fact that food tastes better at Burning Man. Well, it dropped Jason off, so we were on foot. Even in the small Black Rock City of 96, it was still a long way back to camp. Nothing is close on the playa. There was some daylight left, so we retreated to glimpses into the camps, people upbeat and cheery. They all seemed so together and prepared with close-knit groups and the best of friends. We made it back to Checkpoint Salon with just enough light to see the outlines of our cruddy camp. It was my first day of Burning Man, and I was already doing what most burners do when they get to the event, start planning for the next year. Next time I stock the car with what's needed, bro, I said to Jay. He just gave me that sheepish smile that he always gave when he was trying to wiggle out of trouble. We hunkered down, and I brought out my CD player and punched up some spearhead. Flash had given us a care package of food, so we ate as the light faded behind the western ridge. The acid was still coming in small waves. It was now just a storm on the distant horizon with faint flashes of heat lightning. 
The thunder was gone. This time I slept in my tent like a hibernating bear. I had no dreams left to give. We traveled under the mountains in search of our true loves. Yeah. 